A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm taking a picture of Lee McQueen because I'm celebrating him. I'm not taking a picture of Tim Walker's impression of Lee McQueen. Throughout all the rooms and wonderful things, what, what you become really aware of is how transformative the power of the imagination is. Mm. That mm. It's not just you being inspired by the object, it's mm. the people who made the object. There's a definite melancholy to photography. It's inescapable. Click of the camera goes, and then you're like, there goes the beauty, that's it, it's done. And then you have a photograph and that's a 2D representation of something that was sublime. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, as London Fashion Week was taking place, fashion insiders were already buzzing about a new exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in honor of the photographer Tim Walker. The exhibition features more than 150 new works inspired by the V&A's own collection in an exhibition designed by Shona Heath. Now, our very own Tim Blanks had the opportunity to sit down with Tim Walker just before the exhibition opened, and he came back blown away. So here's Tim Blanks and Tim Walker inside fashion. I'm sitting here with Tim Walker on the occasion of his show wonderful things at the Victoria and Albert Museum and I've just seen the show so it is such a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk about it with Tim and I think 
for everybody who comes to the show, it is a world of wonder. It is full of wonderful things. And I wanted to know why Tim called his show Wonderful Things. I think wonderful thing is, is we were, it was a working project for sort of two, three years and you're encountering so many different things and it was just a journey. And it was going to be called the, an odyssey, the journey. Um, didn't really know what we were going to call it. We never really had a, a title for it. And then um, my producer, Jeff, said, um, do you know the, the story of Tutankhamun when they got into the tombs in Tutankhamun? And uh, Howard Carter was asking, um, who did Howard Carter go with? Howard Carter. Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon. They went into the tombs and they finally broke through it. And then there was silence and there, he was like, what can you see? What can you see? And obviously he could see a, 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 a time capsule and otherworldly, extraordinary vision. And all he could say was wonderful things. And that kind of, in a way, chimed with, with what you see when you come to the V&A, I think. I think it's when you, when you go into the exhibition, the first thing you encounter is the, the, the corridor of a retrospective that's in a very brightly lit room. And it's, um, yeah, just a sort of a speedy boarding journey through my photography for the last two decades, two, two, two and a half decades. And then you get to the end of it and it's, there's a room called the Chapel of Nudes, which is all the nude work that I've done re very recently. And that's kind of, I think, where I am at the moment, this sort of complete liberation of um, looking at people without their clothes on in a very sort of beautiful way. And then the main exhibition hall that you then go on into is called uh, Wonderful Things. And that's it just literally a love letter to the V&A from myself. How would you... If we start right at the beginning, which is that long corridor with with yeah. a, a sort of retrospective of your yeah. of your work over the past few decades, how would you describe that work now when you look at it? What what's the distinguishing distinguishing characteristics of that body of work of of the first corridor? Yeah, um, God, it's sort of like you don't realize as a photographer that what you're doing is so. Um, one thing it's so so clear that there's such a voice it's such a one voice thing um and then you look back at it and you go god yeah that's 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 it it's just one very very clear i didn't realize that i was just being so not repetitive but i think taking the same 10 pictures in a way this sort of like yeah absolute absolute fantasy and yeah and just dreams so, just really. sort of relentless fantasy. why relentless do you feel it over overpowered you uh, I think, um, what did what overpower me? Well, it's interesting. You do mention, and because you have two books out, there's a book for the exhibition, Wonderful Things, and then there's another book, Shoot for the Moon, which mm. is a sort of big monograph, mm. a big, messy monograph. And you, yeah. do, you do make a very interesting point in that book that you, you felt that the scale, maybe the production, the, the, act, the technicalities of those images that you were making – you lost touch with the moment, the, 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 the magic of the moment of making an image that yeah. you got bogged down and putting beds and trees and, and, and crystal ships and stately homes. And I mean, they are extraordinary images. I think, I think that's really a key 
thing you've picked up on and that that is very much how I feel now it felt like I was carrying very heavy bags but when I was younger as a photographer I had that energy to do it you know it takes an, an enormous amount of physicality and enthusiasm to make that type of image because it's um the very sort of complicated set like the beds and the trees what you just explained they're very it's, it's a lot it's a lot and you can see it in your head and you um you want to get there to make the picture but by by meditating on that vision that you have in your head you often miss the um the beauty of the spontaneous about things that just flutter in front of you that are way more sublime than your premeditated vision i think what 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 is always been so magical about that early work or the earlier work is that that sense that nothing was impossible mm. you could you could defy gravity you could yeah. you could make a you could make a gray elephant blue mm. you could mm. you know turn pussycats and persian pussycats into yeah. this kaleidoscope colors. of colors i mean yeah. there was that there was that kind of incredible energy i mean uh, when you when you look at surreal uh, surrealism surreal mm. artists surrealist artists you feel the same sort of joy that it was some, almost subversive in a way i think it's it, it's um from my point of view i think it was uh uh it was so playful it was really playful and um that play it's just sort of like building a tree house or building, putting on a stage production. It just took a lot though. It takes a lot to do it. And I think to realize that you have to just, yeah, just put an immense amount of energy into it, um, which is something I, I don't have anymore. Did, did you feel that? And it's something I don't, not only don't have, but I think that was what that whole period as a photographer, when I was really exploring that fantasy that was, um, I really explored it. And by really engaging with the, um, the pure pleasure of playing with fantasy and the impossible, I then now realize that, um, yeah, you miss out on other things maybe by just because you're focused so much on making the impossible possible and happen and physical and work with an army of extraordinary talented collaborators to make that happen there's um now i just see a beauty in in the simplicity of a a beautiful nude man or a nude woman or um the simplicity of a uh, a girl in an incredibly beautiful dress against a white background i think any any complicated extra stuff feels like um heavy hand luggage did you did you did you feel actually that you that that, that it was almost becoming a cliche in a way that is a Tim Walker mm. photograph? You had such a definite signature, and I'm feeling now um, that the, the, there was the playfulness, there was the fantasy, there was the sort of uh, the kind of dreaminess, and now there are there are different undercurrents. There's darkness, there's eroticism, mm. there's a there's a mm power there that's yeah. much more primal perhaps than yeah. the pictures used to be i think that the 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 portraiture of taking pictures of people against the white background was was literally a response to 
going the other way to making very fantastical set sets and photographing people in sets it was just a sort of a celebration of the person i didn't want to um i didn't want to disguise if if you're photographing someone you're you know like if you're photographing david lynch and i grew up watching david lynch as we all you know we all did suddenly you're sitting in front of david lynch why would you put david lynch into a very complicated set because then you kind of lose david lynch and that was a very interesting sitting with him because he was um so into the sort of simplicity of the portrait and um yeah, we had a big discussion about his transcendental meditation and yeah the sort of the emptying of the fantasy in a way if if meditation is you're emptying your head of your thoughts or your fantasies that's that i learned a lot from that i mean most recently we saw your portraits of margaret atwood in mm. the sunday times last weekend she was that was an interesting one because yeah. that was kind of a little bit of a i did photograph her very simply you know when she first came in but she what i really quickly realized is that she's got a great love of fashion she loves clothes and she really wanted to um amplify her persona for that photograph she wanted to become bigger than she is and in 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 that way is a shoot like that a collaboration then oh i mean it was totally a um more it's more leaning towards her directing herself and me merely helping her to achieve that that's what gives me most pleasure when you photograph when you meet someone like margaret atwood and she comes to the studio and i sit down and I have a conversation with her and i try and feel her out and feel what she wants to do and then i i was surprised that she really wanted to play and she wanted to play dress up and she wanted to celebrate the book she'd just written and she she even was thinking about the the colors and the graphics of the cover of the testaments and how that could be translated through what she wore and then she went and looked at all the clothes in the dressing room and she she cherry picked a black cape a green glove and then she was like i really would love a a, a feather can we get a feather and we didn't have a feather so then the stylist harry had to um dismantle a hat that had a long pheasant feather in it that became her quill and then she was like i really think we need to get some eggs you must have some eggs in your fridge and we're like we don't have any eggs but we can get an egg so then someone went and got an egg she completely choreographed her photograph and that is a gift for me because i'm that photograph then becomes margaret atwood it's not my perception of margaret atwood it's she's she's chosen to do that and she was just so enjoyed it and and yeah she was really with it and she met she made it like and a self portrait then it's a self put in a way a selfie i i helped her to make her selfie which is really it's a gift what the you- worst thing you could do would be to put um you know a handmaid's tale you know that'd be the worst thing you could do to sort of turn her into one of her characters in her book 
and you prefer working with portraits when it's that kind of interplay? I mean, what what what's your usual portrait shoot? Because as we've seen, there's, in, in there's this a book, thing in the thirty eight A in the room downstairs. If the, the, the there's a section, the portraiture section, and there's a text um, called the handshake, and I think it really um, describes how I feel about making a portrait of someone. Um, it's like the person you're photographing is walking towards you and there's a pathway between yourself, the camera and the person you want to take a picture of them, picture of, and they walk towards you. And as you get towards them, hopefully you'll align and you will meet in the middle and you'll shake their hand and they, you'll agree a certain uh, way of how you can celebrate that person. And they will say, I, I want a skull or I want a quill or I want to wear um, a pink dress or I want to be photographed with sand or the, whatever. The, the, and, and that's a discussion and that's the agreement. I think if I dictated and said, it's that interesting, you know, with that picture with Lee McQueen, it was I wanted that skull to be on his head. And then he had a bow tie made of bones. So he was sort of like skull and crossbones. He was like, there's no way I'm going to put a skull on my head and wear a bow tie made of bones, but I really like the skull. And then I really want to work in. He, he choreographed the, the skulls and the bones and made it his picture. And then he was smoking and then he took a cigarette and he stuck it inside the skull and that became the picture. So that's, that taught me as well. A lot not to um, not to push something onto anyone because I'm taking a picture of Lee McQueen because I'm celebrating him. I'm 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 not taking a picture of Tim Walker's impression of Lee McQueen. I want the picture of Lee McQueen to be of Lee McQueen. So the fact that he then changed my toys and made them his own was was what made that picture you you assisted abaddon you assisted richard abaddon and i and i noticed there was a there's a quote from him in 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 the show um where he taught the advice he gave you was the uh, the subject comes first oh they always and then the technique yeah don't don't ever ever uh, get complicated or weighed down in props or complicated lighting or flash systems that are going to fuck up you've just got to the person in front of you is the gold that is where everything is that is the absolute point of your that the decisive moment is what's in front of you do you feel you've come to understand that better with time though totally. I, like when you go into the yeah. chapel of the nude for example yeah, yeah. and it's so graphic Mm. that room it's quite stark mm. and um like i said before it's dark and it's it's quite erotic mm. and that feels to me like the sensibility that you acquire with age and experience mm. you know yeah i think that I, appreciation I, I, I never would have taken nudes previously i never would have known how to and i, I it's just yeah with age you understand that um certain people are really comfortable about expressing themselves nude. And I think, again, it's like the portraiture. If you, you talk to them and discuss what they want to do and you navigate your camera with responsibility and um, 
with immense respect, you can create incredibly beautiful nude pictures. I think um, that's where I'm at at the moment. I find that really thrilling to work with people that that want to collaborate in that way. Um, but I think, again, because it's the polar opposite to fashion photography, which is if, if, if a, a portrait of a subject on a white, plain white background is the antithesis to a Baroque fantasy set, then... A nude study is the antithesis to fashion photography. You, it's such a celebration of flesh that room mm. because there's all types. There's yeah. all. You've got Beth Ditto, mm. and then you've got um, Oliver Bailey, the mm. fitness instructor, um, and Kate Moss, and that mm. extraordinary series of pictures based on Angela Carter's book, The Magic Toy, Toy Shop. Shop. Yeah. All with a twist, you know. The, the Oliver Bailey photos. He's a beautiful man, but it's like. Francis Bacon's painting, paintings of George Dyer. Mm. They've all got a, a subtext. Mm. I think, um, you know, uh, it's so um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, and I could see something about Oliver Bailey that was um, just so instantly Bacon. It was Francis Bacon. And it was just, he's, he's, he's not a performer either he's 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 a sportsman so how do you get uh, a sportsman to perform and become um an ode to a francis bacon painting and yeah it's, it's um a really interesting clumsy um difficult and then when you start to see a way in to Francis Bacon's world or, or and then, yeah, it's such a sort of, it, it's, it's so exciting that but anyone, anyone, it's really interesting. A friend of mine said to me, um, she's a stylist. I work with Alice Goddard and she said, it's really interesting, you know, photographing people because everyone has got something, anyone. You could just walk out and blindfold, walk onto a bus and the fifth person along on the seat they, everyone has something. And the responsibility of the photographer is to find a beauty in anyone because everyone has something. In a way, that's the challenge of photography, but it's also the freedom of photography. The freedom, yeah. You've got, you've got so much easy access. You know, mm. with the camera is a, is a very convenient tool to access I think, everything. I think the camera, the camera gives reason it justifies one's presence somewhere and it justifies these peculiar meetings when you're photo doing a portrait of someone who you don't you you know because they're celebrated a celebrated writer or they're celebrated artist you've never met them before and then by virtue of the camera they are sitting in front of you that that's the sort of like when i was starting out as um you know a photographer i used to uh, use my dog and I used to let my dog off and then I'd be snooping around trying to find a location to take pictures and I thought if my dog was off and then I would be trespassing essentially and then people come up to me and go what are you doing trespassing I'd say I've lost my dog I'm looking for my dog and so the, the, the camera is the it allows you into places and gives you a reason to be there so it's it, it it's not a distancing thing. Then it actually makes it actually creates an intimacy. No, I think the camera doesn't distance. I think if you go into photography 
um, with the person you're photographing. You're with them. You're you, it's, you're celebrating them. You want them to look amazing. You want them to look glorious. That's what you're there to do. And the camera is merely um, a black box you put between you and them, and it's it it's um yeah it's a tool of intimacy. How did you come to photography? Um, kind of, um, I didn't think, I mean, cameras are, are, or, or can be incredibly complicated, um, things. And I was sort of like, I don't think I can, um, you know, cause like working with Avedon, for example, it, 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 although he always put the subject first, his, his, uh, camera, his technique was actually quite complicated. You know, he worked on a 10-8 camera. There were flash, there were four flash or six flashlights going off. There were four or eight wind machines. It was an incredibly dramatic, complicated setup often, um, even though his his mantra was keep it simple. Um, I never thought I could I could ever and I wasn't interested in in the camera and the workings of the camera and then I discovered um a very very simple camera that would be kind of the equivalent I suppose of an iPhone today just this that that anyone can just hit the button on their phone that's got the camera icon on it and it's it works it it was a Pentax K1000 that's um the the most simple simple simplest camera you can use and once I discovered that, that that was how I how I went forward. Um, I was I was always yeah thought I could never do it, but that's how I did it. But it feels it feels to me like like your your inspiration, your driving force was your own imagination. I, I love that line from your mother about go out go out into the garden. You yeah, know? don't. Mother, more mothers should be saying that to their kids, I guess, who are yeah. stuck on their phones and their computers. Go out to the garden and use your imagination. Use your imagination. That feels like something that was that very was much your... how I was brought up. Um, yeah, she was sort of like, you know, as any child who's sort of they're bored or they they don't know what to do, you just yeah, just go outside and make it up, make something happen, make make it happen. She was of that. Yeah. That's how she brought my brother and I up to make, use your imagination, get out into the garden and find something. I feel like that's why nature in a, in mm. a funny way is so, is so, is so perverse, but it's so powerful in your pictures mm. that, mm. you know, you grew up with fairies at the bottom of your garden, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, I think, uh, I think I've always sought, um, comfort and reassurance from nature and being outside and I think that's where I came from and I think um that's where I I, I will go walking and then you get ideas um yeah if I find nature's um yeah a source of of everything really and would you say that that has sort of infused your work with almost a kind of pagan spirit that there is a sort of I wouldn't say I don't know. Are you Celtic? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't know if there's a sort of. I wouldn't say there was a Celtic strain oh, in it. Too, but I don't it? know. I don't know. I think it's sort of innately in me that sort of. Um, I think there's so many stories and senses and moods and ghosts of ancient ancient landscapes that are 
inescapable. They 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 kind of they're still living in in in, in well they're living in me for sure. Um, yeah, because your your work is so distinctive. Um, every phase of it, the stuff we see in this exhibition, the older stuff, the the new stuff. It's so. It, it feels like I love the idea of something coming through you, mm. you know, that you are just a medium. I think in a way I think about that a lot. I think that, um, I think that stories, images, visions are living things that exist in the ether. And then they use us to articulate themselves. I think, I think a lot of the ideas I've had, um, like you get a vision of something and, and it just often can come just very um, serendipitously. Like, like if you're out walking, like I say, or you'll be reading something and it can, it's not what you're reading that you're seeing. It reminds you or something comes through it. It's sort of in the air. And then I think merely you as a person are there to make that, give that story life. You're the, you're the conduit. You're the, yeah. I love the point you make about when you're taking a still, sometimes there's a gust of wind or something and mm. you wish that you were doing a movie because yeah, yeah. there's just this strange uh, eccentric moment that for you is about being alive, I guess. It's just life. I think any photograph, if, if any f- photograph, if it was how I pre-visualized it and that is all, I'd be really disappointed. I think that all the photographs that you've just seen, there's a mistake in all of them. It is something went wrong. Something surprised me. Someone did something that helped make it. Nothing was as I planned it at all. We had the plan and the organization to be there, but something went beyond and made it something that floored me when I looked through the viewfinder and, and took that photograph. It really, it, it exceeded expectations. So I often think it's not me making that, it's something else. And now I can only now think that it's just visions are waiting to be found and articulated. The fourth dimension. The fourth dimension, yeah. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Who 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 did you consider to be your mentors when you when you started making images? Um, I think um, there when I first first started out as just a sort of nobody young assistant. Um, there were some really sweet people that that I was small fry nothing. People like Sarah Jane Hall, you know, Sarah Jane was such a um, support. It was her that said you have to go to New York to work with. She said that you had to go to work with Arthur Elgort. Was she a stylist at Vogue at that time? She was, yeah, she was. And she said you have to go to New York and learn and um, to be doing an apprenticeship. Um, she was, she was, she was, I mean, many, many people. She was very, very early when I was very young. She helped me and navigated things but it's so interesting you work with El, El Gort you work mm. with Avedon and mm. your photos are, were not remotely like yeah either of them yeah but I think though that there's um I mean it would be a shame if they were because that's their world you know Avedon would be terribly sad to repeat the pictures that Avedon did um but there's a definitely um a, a way of talking to your subjects and I copy that from Abaddon. He had such a, a great uh, way of getting a performance. So a lot of people I, I photograph, they're not performers at all. Like Margaret Atwood, she's she's not a performer, but through her love of fashion and her open-mindedness and her good mood on the day, she was very up for playing. So I'm equipped with um, an ability of how to get a performance of play acting character play from uh, the the time when I assisted Avedon because he was so good at that so for example um, 
I remember we were doing the Versace campaign and the the two models, uh, Kristen McMenemy and Naja Auerman were, were dressed in black Versace suits and they were bit shoulder pads and little mini skirts and great white stiletto shoes. And they came out and I looked at the, the models as an assistant standing there with the light working with, with Avedon. And I was like, how is he going to navigate? How is he going to make these very ordinary um, workwear clothes? How is he going to turn it into a Richard Avedon photograph? And he just stood there and he looked at them and he said, your, your crows, your birds, and you're um, on a branch. And you're fighting because you've both seen one worm below you. And then Nadra and Kristen sort of ruffled their sleeves and moved the jackets. And they became black crows. And the camera, the 10-8 camera is on the floor shooting up. And they fought for the worm on the studio floor. And that's what made the picture. So it wasn't about your gorgeous look to the left you're stunning you're sexy you're hot you're fabulous it was you're a crow and you're fighting for a worm and they even they took off their shoes and they started hitting one another with their shoes to get the, the worm there wasn't a worm there wasn't a branch there wasn't a crow but it became an avidon picture and he did that time and time again that character play and then that's what I now copy. <laughs> so, so how does a Tim Walker picture become a Tim Walker picture? Um, What's your equivalent of telling the girls to be black crows on a branch? I think it's that, it's that playfulness. And I think it's um, encouraging everyone who I'm working with just to be open to possibilities of a mistake. I think it's always been mistakes and the um, it's always things at the time they come and they, they sound crazy to do them, but, and people are like, no, we can't do that. We can't, but that's, I think it's that sort of play, it's play, play. How do they come those ideas? Do you dream, do you dream them or? Well, I think they, they, they come, they come from um, the same places that you look at, you know, books and film and, stories people tell you or, or incidences that you notice as you're going about your life or um, historical facts, but, but they come in their um, mix. So you mix up a historical fact with a contemporary thing you've seen on the street with a, an old painting mixed with um, a piece of a lyric from a song. It's the sort of um, their ingredients that make the, the recipe. I mean, this show, Wonderful Things, it is, as you said, it's your love letter to the V&A um, and their incredible resources that they mm. have here that span millennia and, mm. and every single creative endeavor you can think of a human being embarking on. When did that relationship start? Because it feels to me it's very what you were just saying um, about... Um, you know, drawing in so many disparate elements to make the images. It, it feels that that is, this is an essential expression of, of that, this, this exhibition. Well, I mean, I've always known the V&A, um, you know, growing up in this country, we would come on school trips and, and so on. And, and so I always knew what it was about, but I think that the, the, the actual, um, 
commission from the VNA to work on this project. Um, I think it, it came from a series of photographs I did that are exhibited in this exhibition based on the Garden of Earthly Delights, the Hieronymus Bosch painting. The VNA saw um, photographs that I'd taken inspired by that painting. And then they thought, well, you know, if you can make those photographs based on the Garden of Earthly Delights, we we've, we've have a museum stacked with the most extraordinary, disparate, ec ec eclectic um, notion, humankind's articulation of beauty. Could you go? There's so much. I mean, it goes from a something from a Catherine Hamnet t-shirt to a um, a ring dug up in, in the desert from 5000 BC. The, the time is so disparate. And whether you're looking at a piece of stained glass or something from metalwork or an exquisite Asian Hindi storytelling illustration, there's so much. But what the common thread is, it's, it's, it's an articulation of beauty, I think. It's like um, the most sublime beauty that when you look through and you're taken down to the cloth workers or a storage unit somewhere in the V&A and they pull open a drawer and there's a gray box and it's got a string around it and they open that and then there's another box inside that and then tissue paper opens and then inside that there's a, a flat glove that's so the embroidery in the glove is so sublime and so unbelievably beautiful. And they say that's Elizabeth I's riding gloves. And you're just everything, it's sort of like, um, it's an explosion in your head. It's sort of like, it's extraordinary to think that those gloves in that box belong to Elizabeth I. And that's how she would, the, she held onto the reins of the horse in those gloves. And you look at the embroidery and it's just, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's unbelievably beautiful. Well, now in each of the rooms in the exhibition, you have um, chosen an object from the museum's two million object archive and you've built your world around, mm. around it can be a, as tiny as a snuff box. Mm. The, room, the room that expands out of a single snuff box mm. is the perfect example. Yeah. Um, how did you, confronted by the, so much choice, how did you select the, the, the things just, that you based the show on? Well, you, initially you go to the v and and you, you spend, you know, a year going around and you think, I'm just going to see everything at the v and I'm going to just, just really, you know, I mean, it's, it was such a, an extraordinarily, I was so aware of the privilege, I think, of, of the commission and you really want to honor that privilege wholeheartedly and truthfully and really engage with everything they have. And um, I realized that that was impossible. I you, There's no way you can see everything. So then I just kind of let go a bit and relaxed and just sort of delved into sort of really surprising places. And particularly that little snuff box comes from a collection that the VNA hold that actually I, there was nothing in in that collection that was at all interesting and I was sort of really not relating to anything that I was looking at and then that one little magical snuff box which is the size of a matchbox and then when you look at it 
there's a whole world within it. It's sort of like a, a magical garden at nighttime with a, a, a prince or a princess walking a dragon, um, picking flowers that um, grow at a, on a full moon. It's almost too small for me to see. It's yeah, so, it, yeah. so incredible. Yeah. And, and that immediately... It, it, I don't know who made the snuff box. I couldn't actually even now tell you what year it was made. The 1790s. Right. Like 1795 or something. But I think just the, the explosion when you look at something of, of, of that beauty, who made it, where it's come from, what year, is that's not the point. The point is whoever made it, that articulation of beauty and refinement and skill and sensitivity and gross romanticism touches me. It really, really touched me and illuminated me. And then that illumination, that's all I need. That's all you need. It's sort of like, um, yeah, it's an explosion that goes off in your head and all you want to do is make a response to that as a photographer and you you can immediately see this whole landscape roll out in front of you and you know exactly how to honor it see what i think is extraordinary is that each of those objects inspired a body of work in, in you from you which you were which and the body of work was something you did editorially mm. in in your fashion work mm. so this project, this Wonderful Things project, which has been going on for, what, three years? Yeah, three years. Yeah. Actually shaped your entire output, your professional. It wasn't just something you were doing on the side. Yeah. It shaped your entire professional output uh, as it well. It was everything, yeah. I mean, when you see it here, it, I mm. think that that to me is, because obviously I've seen all those shoots when mm. you did them in magazines, mm. like ID and Vogue and mm. everybody else that you work for. And to see the genesis of them, mm. it's it's there's this sort of big picture here, yeah. which is enthralling. I think it's very important to me that uh, the pictures were in um, the in magazines in 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 culture today because I think that was something else I wanted to honor all those historical objects and make them very contemporary. So even though they are published in magazines and if you're involved in the fashion industry, you might've seen some of the pictures, but then when you come back and you see where they've come from, like you say, the genesis of that, that's, that's where the heart of the matter is. I think the most poignant room is the room with, um, is he a model? James with, Spencer, yeah. And there's the box. The pink that, room, the pink the house. The pink room, the yeah. pink house. Yeah. There's the box that teenage girls, like That's, a 13-year-old girl made. That is the most poignant room for me too. It's um, And she made that box when? In the it's six, 18th, 16th? 1670. And she, before electricity, she's there creating this treasure box to put her world into. So it's, it's a, a uh, it's called a casket and on the outside are these seat panels embroidered in intricate embroidery of chivalrous knights, kissing princesses, people on horses, unicorns, moths and caterpillars. And um, it's just so touching that a 15 year old girl would um, create an object of such beauty because it was her world. She was creating um, 
little secret drawers where she could put her love letters and her jewelry and her her secret things, her most treasured, treasured things. And then it had a lock on it. And it's sort of like, um, it felt like an iPhone today, this sort of idea of, or oh, that we carry our phones. Lost mine this morning and then we found it. Just saying to Chosie. <laughs> few, few. <laughs> that, that we keep, it, they are our treasure boxes. We keep our photographs on them. We keep our messages. We, we, they are our worlds, private worlds that is, and it's, it's so important. And I just found that, yeah, incredibly touching. And then you extemporized from that casket mm. to James Spencer's mm. private world where, yeah. he, where you photograph him in the house he grew up in, yeah. which is where? Lancashire. In back up in Lancashire. Yeah. 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 A, quite a grim. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like a, very grey. Yeah, and grey and grim. You know, he's, James is a very beautiful man, um, very romantic figure. And he, um, what's interesting, well, what was interesting for me was that he feels more beautiful as a woman. And then he comes down to London and he transforms himself and he dresses up and he look, goes to the V&A and he looks at Elizabethan costume. He looks at Tudor. He looks at 50s couture and he takes that on and becomes his most beautiful self, which is a woman. And I think that whole bridge from time, him looking at periods of history and what people were wearing, him going out clubbing and dancing with friends and in that room, all his friends on the wall and what they wear. And then you can see echoes of Tudor culottes. You can see an Elizabethan ruffle. You can see history in the club scene in, in London with him and his friends. And that was the the love letter to the little 15-year-old girl who created her world in 1670 with her you know, immaculate heartfelt embroidery. Here it's being able to sing again in a contemporary way. And that obviously that's super topical. Mm. Um, that's identity and 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 self-creation and and um the sort of gender fluidity, I guess. Mm. But but I think throughout all the rooms and wonderful things, what, what you become really aware of is how transformative the power of the, ma the imagination is. Mm. That mm. It's not just you being inspired by the object. It's mm. the people who made the object, you mm. conceive of the object. Mm. Then you put James Spencer in this sort of Boschian garden. Mm. Like, this, like you imagine that that's the world in his head, this mm. very vivid um surreal environment yeah know, where, where there are no rules where and where he can be what he wants to be it's his the freedom for him to express himself and be what he wants to be which is the the most thrilling point of humanity the, that honesty to to say what you are is well for me as a photographer that's that's what i want that's that's what i live for so they're the kind of people you're drawn to generally then. Always, it, it's very much been. on the wall here. That yeah. Whether it's Tilda Swinton or Edith Sitwell yeah. or Beth Ditto or, yeah. you know, the, it's very a very strong sense of, of these people who will go wherever you want them to go or yeah. have already been there and you're taking a picture of them yeah. in the way. I think that they they inspire me because maybe when I was younger, I couldn't have gone where I wanted to go. I felt sort of chained by 
um, expectations or cultural societies, it's some sort of repression, I suppose. And then to see and exist and work and collaborate with people that are liberated, I think is a very, and, and own their beauty in all the extremities of beauty is a really positive thing and inspiring thing. I mentioned Edith Sitwell. That little bit is, mm. is, is, that's not the Vivian Lee wig, is it, from Streetcar Named Desire? It is. That was in the V&A's archives, the wig mm. that Vivian Lee wore in A Streetcar Named Desire. Such an extraordinary story. That, that I went to uh, one of the departments here and it, there was um, a really odd object. I couldn't work out. I didn't know whether it was a sort of an, an, a taxidermied animal or I couldn't work out what it was. And it was wrapped in ne a neon orange net. I was like, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's Vivian Lee's wig that she wore in A Streetcar Named Desire. And it's, yeah, it's the character of Blanche. And I was like, and they said, what's so exciting is that we've discovered that the, the original wig maker, Gwen Franklin, from 1950, is alive and living in London. And she's now in her sort of late 80s. And she's going to reset the wig for our archive as Blanche Dubois. And she lives in the Barbican. And I was just like, that's such an extraordinary story. And then we were going through um, Cecil Beaton's telegrams and he sent a letter to Vivian Lee's husband, Laurence Olivier, saying, you know, there nothing, not a lot was going on on Broadway this year in the sort of 40s. But there's this, there's this young playwright called Tennessee Williams and he's, he's done a, um, this play called A Streetcar Named Desire. And I think Vivian really should read that script. She could be she could really enjoy that. And so it's interesting that Beaton created Vivian Lee's Blanche. It was him. He was the catalyst. I didn't know that. No, I didn't. But I think it's very interesting in that letter, he manages to mention a streetcar named Desire without mentioning Marlon Brando, which mm. was the reason why it electrified Broadway, mm. and spelling Vivian Lee's name wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's only human, isn't it? <laughs> but it's just such a beautiful... Um, coming together of a, a, a journey through the V&A and finding a very, like you say, very sort of shorthand, misspelt telegram to Laurence Olivier, you know, get persuading Vivian Lee to read a part. And then there's the wig. And then that's the book that I read at school. You know, we had to read that in English. A Streetcar Named Desire was, was the text we read. So, and I was always fascinated by Blanche. You know, she held such a, she's such a, um, I think I really related to her at a very young age, you know. Well, there's a question for your therapist. Right there with the wig, that becomes part of your story. The wig, the letter, the, the, mm. the letter from Cecil Beaton to my dear Larry and retelling stories. Like this whole, th th there's something else in the show that reacquainting people with the power of imagination, but also educating them in a way that mm. this is, the world is infinite, you know, that, mm. that, that, that you walk around that show and there's just so much to, to take on. Do you feel a sense of mission in a way that I, I'm, I was thinking of this as a legacy project that you've worked on it so long and you've, you've intertwined your story and the VNA story so tightly in the show that it's kind of 
it stands there as a body of work that will that will exist as, as long as this museum does. Mm. Mm. I, I don't think I, I really had any uh, future projection. I didn't really think about how it was going to be. I just, I just, I think um, I really just enjoyed the uh, thrill of the resource of the V&A and finding things that really surprised me and really using it um, intently um going to the library going down to to corridor after corridor after corridor of back departments and looking at objects and things and just finding like you said this sort of infinite infinite objects of beauty and it just it just goes on and on and it's just i think that uh the story of beauty the story of the decorative arts is just an ongoing living uh, thing of such gargantuan proportion. It's like a balm. It's like a medicine. It's such an important medicine. And to to be here in this enormous museum and see it existing as an infinite, enormous, utopian, beautiful vision, I think is just is just fundamental. There's there's a you know romantic theory that the power of beauty lies in its transience. Mm. Do you feel in a way you're counteracting that by giving these things a permanence beyond? I mean, finding Vivian Lee's wig, for example. Mm. But there are, there are other things. There's a sort of everything isn't grand. There are mm. humble things as mm. well. Um, do you, do you feel that you're? Do you, do you feel that you're that you're bringing a kind of permanence to these objects by? making them into some by 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 um is it like an alchemy that you're performing you know you're making them into something else no i think i think um they're just they all, all the um objects in in the show are just things that have really touched me and and they might not touch people in in in, in the same way um i think the vna holds things so many things that 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 Will will touch other people. I think, um, yeah, I think they're just personally for me. They're things that have really amused me, illuminated me, floored me in their beauty. I think, um, yeah, I think that, yeah. But what about the idea of the transience of beauty, though? Your your photo your your job for for years and years has been to photograph extremely beautiful people mm. looking extremely beautiful in extremely beautiful clothes mm. in glorious against glorious backdrops are you i mean there's a sort of melancholy in that in a way because all things must pass and and actually melancholy is something that i rather enjoy in in your work i think it's so interesting you say that i think that by virtue of clicking the 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 cable release on a camera that is a melancholic sound to me because you're seeing someone or something at its optimum beauty, whether that's a sort of a garden and it's lit at four o'clock in the afternoon and it's the absolutely the most exquisite light and you take the picture and you know that the seasons are changing and summer's leaving and autumn's coming and 
you're taking a picture of a girl who's so unbelievably um, otherworldly beautiful. You know that that will change. There is, um, as a photographer, I'm hyper aware of my mortality, I think. Now, I'm very aware because of the transience and because you take pictures of things and you take pictures of houses and then they crumble or they get uh, restored and then when they're restored they lose their soul or um yeah i think um there's a, a definite melancholy to photography it's inescapable it's an inescapable memento mori inescapable take the the you click of the camera goes and then you're like there goes the the optimum time there goes the beauty is it, that's it it's done and then you have a photograph and that's a 2d representation of something that was sublime but it's gone and do you feel it's such a perfect place to stop but i have to ask you do you feel whether there's a slight spirit of defiance in your latest work then i think Beauty, I think, ends I the moment the, the the little death petty more of the camera click is an end, but then ends are always followed by beginnings, and I think that um, being melancholic and sad about losing something is don't engage with that for too long because. You know, that girl that was was really beautiful when she was in her 20s, she can be even more beautiful when she's in her 70s. And I think that's something I've really come to recognize is that um, beauty comes back in waves. Seasons come back, summer comes back. There's actually a real beauty to winter. Um, yeah, beauty comes back. It always will do. And as you leave wonderful things, the very last image is the book with uh, that comment about new beginnings. Mm. So there's a whole other world waiting for you. There. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in joining BOF's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis in our Daily Digest email, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, special print issues, and all of our online courses and learning materials from BOF Education. For a limited time only, we are offering our podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on your first year of an annual BOF Professional Membership. To get this special offer, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special code PODCAST2019 at checkout. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a rating if you did, and don't forget to share it with your friends. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.